0: been looking over the last few weeks at uh, one of the most famous of all of the judges, and that is a man by the name of Gideon. During Gideon's season of ministry, during his particular calling, you had a formidable foe for the Israelites. You had a nomadic people known as the Midianites, who at harvest time would come into the land and they would pillage. So the Hebrew people would plant their crops and tend to their crops. and just the time of harvest, when they would reap the, the fruit of their labor, the Midianites would swarm in. They would plunder and pillage and take everything, leaving the children of Israel in a tough spot. Famine and hunger. It's a difficult scene. For seven years, this has been taking place. And the Lord... Decides that he's going to intervene. And he calls a young man by the name of Gideon. Gideon, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to use you to free my people, to deliver my people from the hand of Midian. Now, where we left things off, you had the Midianites on one side of the valley, 135,000. We're told that they're camels, the ancient tanks were so numerous you couldn't count them. So on one side, you had 135,000 Midianites, and then Gideon blows the trumpet, and the people come out and they gather, the troops rally, 32,000. Now, that's not great odds, but it's still a battle is gonna be waged. On one side, you have the Midianites. On the other side, you have the Israelites. And yet God sees a problem. You see, God is gonna make sure that the people know that he's the one doing the delivering. In fact, God wants to set up a scene, a scenario, a situation whereby no one can take credit for the victory he's going to yield. No one's going to be able to be puffed up, to be filled with pride, to take credit for a work of God. And so they've got 32,000 and the Lord comes to Gideon and he says, hey, you tell them, anybody that's afraid, they can leave. And a whole bunch of them leave. Now, they're left down to about 9,000 or so. Gideon is looking at this like, well, our odds just got worse. Not sure what God's doing here, but okay. We can go into battle. God's like, nah. I still think after I give you the victory, you're going to want to take credit. And so there's this exercise that God constructs where Gideon sends the men to get water. And the way in which they gathered the water, the way in which they drank, partitioned this group into two different camps. You see, if anyone ran up and they got on their belly and they they were lapping up the water like a dog, mouth to water, well, they went into one group. Now, that was the majority. But anybody that went up to the water and they got down on one knee and they cupped the water and they brought it to their mouth, well, they were placed into another group, about 300 now, Gideon knows what God's doing. And as he's seeing the overwhelming majority going into one camp and a very small minority into the other, he anticipates what the next instruction's going to be. Well, send those guys home. I'm going to use 300. So we're going 300 against 135,000. And there are some Bible commentaries that try to paint this group of 300 as the super commandos. I mean, these were the best of the best, the elites, the Marines, right? The SEALs, you see, they got down on a knee. They kept their head up. They were looking out, making sure, sword in one hand. They were still in the battle, still engaged. But I don't think that that fits the narrative as we discussed last week, because God loves to use, it's a thing about God, the weak things of the world to confound the wise. In fact, God's strength Paul will say, is made perfect in our weakness. You see, just like in this battle and the battles that you face, sometimes God will stack the deck overwhelmingly against you, not to destroy you, but to make you more reliant on him for the victory. And then when he intervenes and he addresses the situation, you're not taking credit. You're pointing it to the Lord. So the 300 Who are these men? If it doesn't fit the narrative of them being super commandos, you see, I think that the reason they didn't get on their belly is as an older man, once you get down on your belly, it's real hard to get up. And your knees are popping and you've got arthritis. These 300 have had knee replacements. They can't get down to the water. They just get down on one knee and bring it up. These are not the best of the best. Gideon devises a plan, a strategy, 300 versus 135,000. God's going to get the glory. And Gideon knows, he believes, he's got faith. He's included in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He believes that the Lord is with him, and he believes that the Lord is going to grant them the victory, even against insurmountable odds. And so he gives all of these 300 men a torch and a clay pitcher to put over the torch to conceal the light and he gives each of the 300 a ram's horn, a trumpet. Note what he doesn't give them, a weapon. (laughs) I mean, really, though, at this point, what good would a weapon be against 135,000? Well, I mean, we might as well go in unarmed. So they camp on the hillsides. They spread out. Now, the Midianites, and we're told a, a coalition of people from the east so it wasn't just the midianites you had the amalekites you had some other people groups all gathered together it's at night it's dark people are fast asleep and out of nowhere they hear this crash of the pots and the trumpets blow and these voices crying out the sword of the lord and of gideon and what happens they look up and they see these torches around they think they're surrounded And chaos ensues. And they start fighting amongst themselves. They're disoriented. They're waking up. Their contacts hadn't settled back into their face yet. They don't know what's going on. And and, and for what they know, they're being invaded. So they start attacking each other. And there's an onslaught that develops. We'll get a running head start. Verse 22 of chapter 7. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord said, Every man's sword against his companion. Throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Milo, or Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. I understand what's happening. The 300, they set this thing on fire, right? People are freaking out. Chaos is, is, is ensuing. And, and anyone that's not fighting, they're fleeing, So you have this 135,000. A lot of them will die in this valley. But a good portion of them are are, are going down the valley ways. They're trying to get out. They're trying to escape. Now, the 300 God uses in this moment to set the battle uh, at start. But it would appear that this other group of people that Gideon has already kind of sent away, God has positioned them in certain places because Gideon starts to rally the rest of the tribes. We're given a list. And the men of Israel gathered together. Hey, victory would be theirs. Naphtali, Asher, all of Manasseh, they pursued the Midianites. So don't, don't think that it's just the 300 that's pursuing the Midianites. It's all of the children of Israel. God intervenes. God uses the 300. God uses Gideon. And nationalistically, the, the rest of the tribes are like, we have victory. Let's do this. Let's jump in the battle. And so they begin to pursue them. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all of the mountains of Ephraim, another one of the tribes of Israel, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Bethabara and the Jordan. Then all of them, the men of Ephraim, gathered together and they seized the watering places as far as Bethabara and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. Not, not two names you, you want to, name any of your kids orb and zeb fact, orb means raven and zeb means wolf these are two bad dudes tough hombres and the ephraimites capture them and they killed orb at the rock of orb i don't know if it was already called the rock of orb or that's what it became known because orb died at this rock and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. So these two princes of the Midianites are captured and they're executed. So they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Or and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Now the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, Why have you done this to us? by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites. And they reprimanded him sharply. So God grants this victory and he uses Gideon. And God has whittled the army down from 32,000 down to the 300. God has a plan. Gideon's being obedient. Yes, it might not make a whole lot of sense. It might defy convention, but Gideon's like, The Lord is with us. And God, I mean, there's a route. And Gideon has has sent word and he's brought other people into the fight. We just saw the conquest here of Ephraim. And yet after capturing Zeb and Orb, and after executing them, they come to Gideon with their heads, the tokens. You know, hey, we've done our part. They are a little sour. That they weren't included in the original battle plan. Hey, what's the deal, Gideon? Did you want the glory for yourself? Why were we not recruited? Why did you not send messages to us? Why were we not there at the beginning? Now, Gideon's got all kinds of logical explanations for this, right? Again, these guys hadn't read the, the, the previous chapters. If they had, they'd know. But here they are in this situation, and, they, and they're scolding Gideon. Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm a little, a little upset about this wait a second, you're, you're misplacing your anger at me, the leader, when really it should be aimed at God because he's the one that's kind of like been doing the thing. I'm just being obedient. You know, I think you'll find this happens a lot. Isn't it sometimes that we, we're so quick to, to misplace our anger and the wrong person? They're, they're ticked off at Gideon. Who should they have been talking to? the Lord. And so they reprimand him. So Gideon says to them, wait a second, guys. That's not in the text. Um, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebizer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Orb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said that now Gideon is tactful here you know the battle's not over and keep that in mind the Israelites have the Midianites on the ropes they've captured two of the princes but the kings are still at large there's still a battle ahead there's still a job to be done there's still a task in front of them and Gideon is not going to get distracted by having some squabble with Ephraim They reprimand him, they scold him, it's misdirected, it's misplaced, but Gideon takes the high road. And he's kind of a smooth politician here. He's like, wait a second, look at what you guys have done. You know, you're upset that you weren't with me, but look at you. You have the heads of Orb and Zeb, you've had this great conquest. Who am I in the presence of such wonderful men? And so he plays a little politics, he smooths things over, And when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him, they crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. I love that. I have that highlighted. I have that phrase, exhausted, but still in pursuit. You know, there is a profound difference between being tired in the fight and being tired of the fight. It, sometimes it'll it'll present itself the same, but there's a difference of being tired of fighting as opposed to just being tired in the fight. Gideon and these 300 men, they're in the battle and they're exhausted and they're tired and they need nourishment and they need a retreat and they need a reprieve, but they are still I love they're exhausted, but they're still pursuing. Guys, there is no break in the spiritual battle that you're in. And the moment that you think there's a break, the enemy is just trying to stab you someplace else. It is a constant battle. It's a continual race. And yes, we can get tired and we can get wore out, but we should never give up. We should never seek to tap out. We should come to the Lord for renewed strength and vision. So Gideon comes to the Jordan, the 300 men. They're they're exhausted, but they're still in pursuit. They're still in the fight. They're still pressing on. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalma, uh, Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars." The men of Succoth, we we don't actually really know specifically where Succoth was located. Obviously, this is an ancient city. Um, It's located near the Jordan. It's along the path of the pursuit of the Midianites. They're exhausted. They're still in pursuit. They're wanting some some bread, some food. These guys are used to eating, you know. They're out of shape. They They need some nourishment. And so they come men of Succoth, give us something. And they're like, eh. Have you? Are you victorious? Do you actually have the kings in custody? Have you actually gained the victory? What are they doing? They're hedging. You see, they're thinking, well, if Gideon actually uh, fails at this and somehow uh, the tide turns against him and the Midianites then are now gained a victory, we're going to be in this tight spot because, well, we helped Gideon, now we're not being loyal. And so they're going to, it's going to come back on us. So they're basically saying, yeah, thanks, but no, thanks. We're going to be Sweden right now. We're going to be, we're gonna, we're just going to take a neutral position. Now, they're in the children of Israel. They should not be taking a, a neutral position. They should, like the Ephraimites and like some of the other tribes, they should be in the battle, at least supporting those that are. And yet they're tapping out. They're like, we want to see which way the wind blows. And Gideon's like, oh, oh, oh. Well, here's, here's the deal, men of Sukkoth. The Lord has delivered, verse 7, Zeba and Zalmun into my hand. So this is prophetic. This is going to happen. And when it does, guess what? I'm coming back. And I'm going to tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness. There will be a reckoning. And he moves on. We're going to see the reckoning in a little bit. Verse 9, verse 8. So he went up from there to Peniel, spoke to them in the same way. The men of Peniel answered, just as the men of Succoth answered, so he said to the men of Penel, saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower, which is, you know, they would have a safe tower. They would have a, a place you give them a vantage point. It was kind of, like, kind of like the walls to the city, but it was a strong tower. It was a place uh, where they would take refuge and they would find security in. So he tells the men of Succoth, it's coming. And these men of Piniel, I'm going to tear down your tower because you're not aiding, you're not helping, you're hindering, and you're playing footsies with the enemy. This is your moment, and you are failing, and there will be a recompense. I will tear down this tower. You know what's interesting at this point, just in the arc of Gideon, we, we see a lot, of, a lot more faith than we did early on, right? You know, early on, you know, when Gideon is being called by the Lord, and the army's come out, and, he, and he's been given promises. I and mean, Gideon's like, do I really know I heard from God? He's throwing out a fleece, right? If the ground is dry, but the fleece is wet, I know the Lord's speaking to me. And then after that, he's like, well, God, I don't want to make you mad. Let's reverse it, just to be sure. Like, weeny bitty faith. But now, God has gained, a, given him a victory. And man, this guy is like, he's rocking and rolling, isn't he? Hey, I will have the victory. This will happen. Like, it's definitive. You know, isn't that how it, it, it's how it works? And I think it's, it's relatable. That when we step out in, 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 in battle and the Lord works, our faith should grow. Our faith should increase for the next battle. Please don't let the victories of the past not affect your faith in the battles of the present. So often, I'll be talking to someone, they're facing something going on, and I know their story. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah, this is a battle. That's true, man. It's, it's a tough one, no doubt. But do you not remember <laughs> the awesome things that God has already done in bigger situations in your life? If you could trust him then, why are you doubting him now? And Gideon, man, we see this. His faith is blossoming. I will have the victory. God is on my side. God will grant it. He believes. He has faith. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them. About 15,000 all who were left of the army of the people of the east for 120,000 who drew the sword had fallen. And so this kind of gives us a little bit of the recap into the destruction. These guys, they only have about 15,000 of their army left, which is still a pretty good force for Gideon's 300. But Gideon went up by the roads of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba in Jagabeth, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. There's no clay pots now. Now we're hand-to-hand combat. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, Gideon pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. You know, the thing that should be commended about Gideon is that he finishes the fight, doesn't he? The battle begins. Great victory is, is handed over. 125,000 die, right? I mean, just an amazing thing. But does Gideon like, hey, we're good now? No. He pursues. He's tired. He's exhausted. But we're going to finish this thing. We're not going to leave anything left out there. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. But let's finish strong. Let's end this. And the way to end this is not just to kill the rest of the army, but you capture the kings and you execute the kings and that's just how ancient warfare worked. You ended it. Gideon fought until the battle was won. When the victory was complete. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle. So he's got The two kings with him. He's conquered them. God has given the complete victory. So he's returning from the ascent of Heres. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth. (laughs) And he interrogated the young man. And the young man wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. So Gideon does a little reconnaissance. I've captured these two kings. Now I'm going to go back through Succoth. He's going back the way that he came. And he's like, I need to know who the power brokers, the decision makers. I need to know the elders of Succoth because, you know, I made a promise and I'm going to to make good on that promise. So this young kid, you know, pulls out, you know, quill and, and pen and paper and parchment. He writes down a list of names, probably with descriptions of them. These are the guys. This is the hit list. Seventy-seven men, and he came to the men of Succoth, and he said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And Gideon took the altars of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and I love the way that this is stated, and with them he taught. The men of Now, there's a little debate into exactly, like, how far this lesson went. If he executed them by lashing, by whipping, or if it's just to make a point. I think it's left a little vague. It always, they learned their lesson. That was kind of the idea here. They had a moment. They could have engaged. They could have been part of the victory, but they weren't. And so this is the fulfillment of Gideon's promise, verse 17. And he also tore down the tower of Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Now, keep in mind, Ziba and Zalmunna are the kings of Midian. And for seven years, they've been pillaging the land. These are bad men. They've committed crime against Israel. They're guilty as charged. And so Gideon has them and we have a bit of a trial taking place where Gideon's like, hey, you've done some really terrible things. And then Gideon makes a statement like, you know, the men that you killed at Tabor, do they look familiar? They were my brothers. Now we don't know if they were actually Gideon's brothers, which does kind of change the the story in the beginning parts of just this hatred towards the Midianites and maybe the resistance. More broadly, you could look at this where he's just saying, I know what you've done to my people the crimes you've committed. You were not merciful. There was no mercy. You were wicked. You were evil. You were heavy-handed. And if you had treated people well, (laughs) this could have worked out differently. But because you didn't, I'm going to treat you the way that you treated your enemies. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. And this is kind of a, a trophy of this. Now, this is an interesting scene. Ziba, Zalmunna, they get captured, they get brought, they're tried. Gideon finds that they're guilty, and we're going to have justice measured out. Now, Gideon is wanting to add a little injury to to insult, insult to injury, and so he tells his firstborn, who's a youth, we don't know how old Jether is. He's like, pull your sword and kill them. I want you to do it. And he's like, no, Dad, (laughs) I'm, I'm not doing this. He's afraid. And we're given like the reason he's a bit of a, he's a youth. And it doesn't seem like that this was just in him to do. And, and this will, I think, become a little bit applicable to the next story, in the next chapter, when we look at the sons of Gideon. It gives us a little insight into the family dynamic. The firstborn son, he's not a warrior like his dad, he doesn't have that, that cutthroat instinct. And so Zeba and Zalmun are like, whoa, he doesn't want to do it, buddy. Why don't you do it? And, and they make this statement about, about the, the strength of a man. Draw your sword. Now, the dynamic here is that Zeba and Zalmun are a little worried about little junior cutting their heads off because he's not real strong. And first whack might not work very well. And, like, this might be a, an agony type of dynamic. So, like, you're strong. Make it quick. And it's what happens. They, they you know, their decisions do not get them ahead in life. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. The application. Application. And, and I think the application for the, the ultimate the ultimate end of these two Midianite kings, I think the end of the, the two princes and, and their death, uh, the dynamic that dealt with the men of Succoth and Pen- Peniel, like there seems to be, at least as you're working your way through, a general idea, concept that is established elsewhere in Scripture. And that is the idea, scripturally speaking, that what a man sows, that's what he'll reap. And we see evidence. A- everyone is getting the just due for their actions. Actions have consequences. A- and we like to see it balanced for it to be just, but the decisions we make carry an effect. Reaping and sowing. You know, Creighton, a few weeks ago when when he spoke, he, he made the point that so often we see concepts illustrated in the natural world meant to aid us in understanding the spiritual world. This is one of those. Whatever you sow, you reap. That's what happens. It's a law of nature. In the physical world, and it's applicable to the spiritual world. The decisions that you make, the actions, the choices, they what you sow will come back around. You will reap what you sow. If you sow grapes, you'll end up with a vineyard, not apple trees. If you sow apple seeds, you know, those trees are not sprouting bananas. Like you're gonna get apples. Like there is this basic fundamental idea. We see it in the world, in nature. We decided this year not to do a garden. Just busy and sports with the kids. and You know, like everybody else, we had built a really nice pandemic garden, you know. Early days of the pandemic, everybody's getting bored and it's like, we need food. (laughs) So we planted a garden. But this year is like, we're not going to do it. But we wanted something other than just weeds. So I, I bought on Amazon a bag of wildflower seeds like, oh, we can get some butterflies and some hummingbirds. It'll look nice. So we threw those seeds out. We did not get tomatoes. We got a lot of wildflowers. Because it's just a natural principle. In our lives, you'll reap what you sow. If you're spending time in God's word, and you're sowing to the Spirit, You'll reap the Spirit. In fact, you'll reap life. If you sow to the flesh, we're told, you will reap of the flesh corruption. Like, what are you sowing in your life? Because that's what you'll reap. And it's a given principle. Now, people will say, well, wait a second. Wait a second. Isn't the idea of sowing and reaping, though, kind of antithetical to really what the essence of the gospel message is? Because doesn't the gospel message say kind of the opposite? That, you know, I'm going to sow a life of sin, and then I'll come and I'll give my life to Jesus, and I'm not going to reap what I was sowing. Instead, I'm going to get the opposite of it. Blessings. Life. Eternity. So wait a second, so how does that fit within this fundamental concept? Oh, 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 don't be naive. The principle of sowing and reaping is still in play. You sowed a life of sin, and there was a reap, a harvest of that life. You just weren't the one that reaped it. Jesus did. You see, Jesus does give us life, and he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. That's what grace is. But the only way he can do that is he reaps what we've sown, death. You see, what Jesus took on the cross, that's what I deserved. We reap what we sow. And we see this illustrated in this text. Now, Gideon, a wonderful story arc. Like some great stuff. Again, he's he's an Old Testament hero. You can't talk about the Old Testament or talk about this season of the Judges without pointing out Gideon. It's an amazing thing. And what happens immediately upon all of this victory, it's a very dangerous place, but Gideon handles it great, and then he doesn't handle it great. So they take the Zeba, Zalmunna, then the men of Israel— Verse 22, said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So the reaction of the men of Israel to this wonderful work that God accomplished through Gideon is that Gideon, we want you to be our king. Israel is trying to coronate Gideon. And and not just coronate Gideon, but they're trying to create a monarchy by which Gideon and the throne would be handed to his son and his grandson. And that they're, they're picking the family of Gideon to be this lineage of kings over Israel. It's a dangerous place for Gideon. Has the Lord told him to do any of that? no. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And this is that moment that you're like, Gideon, good job. Great job. You had an opportunity to be king. You have granted a victory. They are looking to you for leadership. This sets up you, your family, uh, for power and notoriety and influence. Like Gideon has at his fingertips. Everything. But God has said no. That was not his calling. That was not what he was, was called to be or do. And so he, an amazing sense. It, you know, it's it's such a rare thing to find someone that is given power and says no, doesn't want it. Gideon tells us something about his character, tells us something about his person. No, I don't need to rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's how God had designed it. Now, this is about 200 years before God will ultimately grant the wish of the people to, for, for a king. He will give them Saul, and then that will transition to David. A monarch is coming. But Gideon's like, that's not me. That's not my job. That's not my role. I don't want it. And again, we golf clap for Gideon right on. Now it gets, <laughs> takes a turn. Because then Gideon said to them, so he's just, I don't want the power. I don't want the influence. I don't want the position. However, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now, within Ishmaelite nomadic culture, you had gold earrings that was often the currency, it was the money. Gold was a valuable commodity. It was used to buy, sell, and trade. And so they, there's been this slaughter, and so you take the spoils of the slaughter. And so they've, they've gone through, and they've collected all of the gold of the men that have fallen. They were Ishmaelites. This is how they traded. They were known for not just uh, earrings, but nose rings and chains and, and all this. So, so Gideon's like, I, I, do, I don't want power. I don't want to be king. I, I can't touch that. However, you know the gold. <laughs> I would like some of that. And so they said, we'll gladly give it. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it, the earrings from his plunder, and the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were around their necks. We're talking roughly, and again, we don't know exactly what an ancient, the ancient measurements and whatnot. It's hard to be overly dogmatic. Best, best estimate, this is about 50 pounds of gold, pure gold. And in today's market, that's about a million bucks. Go back to ancient Israel. I mean, Gideon is a gazillionaire. <laughs> like this is a great payday for Gideon. So Gideon, note, doesn't want to be king. But he's like, I'll take the money. And there's a lot of it. And and now he's wealthy. And so Gideon made some of this into an ephod. And he set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So understand what's happening Gideon's like, I, I'm not going to be king, but I do want the money. I'll take a payday. And he takes the payday. He goes home to Ophrah, and he creates, he crafts this ephah. And they put it up in the city, and this ephah ends up, all of Israel starts playing the harlot with this ephah, this, this religious symbol. Now, what's going on? What is Gideon doing? So an ephah, if you go back to Exodus, was the, the garment that the high priest would wear. And from the ephah would hang uh, the breastplate, which would have the precious stones of Israel. It would also have a pouch that would hold the, the thuman, the urim, the, the, these, these dice-type things that they would decipher God's will. It was definitely a religious garment, and it was directly connected to the high priest. Is this something that Gideon wore? Or was this something he put up? It seems to be that what Gideon is doing here. While it might not have initially been overt, it definitely becomes this way. He's, he's setting up another place to interact with God. Now, Gideon has had this great relationship with God. Like God came, Jesus came with him in a Christophany, and they, they, they talk face to face, to which Gideon then reveals what's going on after he takes the rock and it consumes the, the meat and whatnot. This cool story. I've seen God, I'm going to die. And then God speaks to him, no, you're not. And you go through Gideon's life, and God is speaking to Gideon all the time. Now, don't forget that Gideon has had a problem with Ephraim. Now, we got that little weird, where they come and they rebuke him, Remember? They wanted some recognition. They wanted to be in the fight. They felt a little slighted, a little shamed. So they rebuke. It doesn't seem like Gideon forgot that. Why? Well, because within the borders of Ephraim was the town of Shiloh. And it was at the town of Shiloh that for the majority of the time, the tabernacle was erected. And it's where the priests were. It's where the worship of God commenced. And it's almost as though, at least the case can be made, that, that, that Gideon's like, you know what? I don't want to support you. I don't want any of my people going to Ephraim. We're going to shun you, set you aside. You can come here and worship God. You don't have to go there. And God views this as harlotry, spiritual harlotry. This was an abomination. So Gideon rejects being king, but he's like, you know, I got a great relationship with God. You guys want to come and and I'll enter, you know, I'll help. You see, he he ends up creating his own influence. And he has his own money. Continue on, let's just read a little bit more, maybe finish out the chapter. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, this is Gideon, he went and he dwelt in his own home. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring. And why did he have many? Poor woman, well, for he had many wives, so poor women. And his concubine, so the wives weren't enough. Now he's got stripper girlfriends. His concubine, who was in Shechem, another town, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age. He was buried in the tomb of Joash's father and Ophrah of the Abizurites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bareth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam Gideon in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. And and these verses provide for us a summary. They set the stage for like a really crazy story that we're going to get to next Sunday. Abimelech. So he has these sons, and he has a harem of wives, And outside of the wives, he he goes to this woman of Shechem. He has another son, and he names that kid Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? (laughs) It means my father is king. That's what it means. You know, Gideon knew he couldn't be king. He knew he couldn't have the position of king. And he was right in that assessment. But what was wrong? He lived like one anyway the wealth and the power and the influence. And then he gets a harem and he has sons and the youngest he names my father is king. Gideon falls flat on his face, doesn't he? His story ends terribly. I can't be king, but I'm gonna live like one. I'm going to do what I want when I want to do it. Tragic. You you see, you see a similar compulsion in ministry, I think. Where you have pastors, you have, hey, I'm not the king. Hey, I'm just one. But they don't live like it. You see, there tends to be a disconnect sometimes of what comes out of someone's mouth and what they actually do. They talk a great game, but they live the opposite way. This is the plight of one of my favorite pastors. Totally messed it all up, man. He was saying one thing and it sounded great. And then you pulled back the curtain and everything he was preaching against, he was doing in practice. And you're like, what a fraud. Gideon. You know, Gideon was great in the battle, the battles, but the man failed to finish strong. And, and and what will happen? Little precursor, this Abimelech goes to the men of Shechem, he's like, Hey, I'll be king. And they're like, sweet. And they bankroll him. He gets some shady characters and he goes back and kills. All of his brothers, all 70 of them, wipes them all out. One day, on one rock, execution after execution after execution. Gideon's entire family gets erased and destroyed. Wiped off the earth because he didn't finish strong. You know, as a man that speaks to me, the responsibility that I have in the lives of my children To finish strong, that my actions will have generational effects if I don't finish well. Hey, I might say I I don't want the glory, but I got to live that way too. I got to practice the same thing I preach the Lord shall rule everybody but Gideon because he didn't and he failed. And his family was destroyed because of him. What a low note, right? Thanks, pastor. That's going to be a fun lunch conversation. Let me leave you with this. You get to Hebrews. You get to Hebrews 11. You get this listing of men of faith people that God, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, picks out of the pages of the Old Testament and puts in a hall of fame. There's Gideon, a very flawed man. But he had faith. And his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. And when it was all said and done, while his story is included in the the pages of Scripture for us, God casts our sin as far as the east is to the west. Not as far as the north is to the south because there's poles. You can get there. You can go north and at some point you'll start going south. If you go east, you'll never be going west. You will always be going east. Unless the earth is flat and then we have another problem. But he casts our, our sin as far as the east is from the west. You know, I, some of my favorite books. So you have... First and second first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and you have first and second Chronicles. And if if you've done a Bible reading plan, you know, you go through, you get all this history in and first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and then you get to Chronicles, and you're like, I've just read this. Like this is like kind of a repeating of the same stuff. David's a character again. Like, why? Like, why do we have first and second chronicles? Well, it seems as though first and second chronicles was was written, was compiled by Ezra upon the return of the children of Israel from Babylonian captivity, many years later. And it was part of a a renewal, a revival. What's fascinating to me about 1st and 2nd Chronicles is that it's actually God's recollection of this period of history we just had. So you read about David, and you get a lot of bad stuff about David, right? Bathsheba, murder, cover-up. And then you get to 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and you start reading about David. What do you not find? Any of that. Why? For when God remembers history, he remembers our sin no more. Gideon, man of faith. Wait, who, this guy? Hell yeah. How cool is it that when God sees us, he sees us the same way? That he sees our righteousness. Hey, reaping and sowing is real, there are consequences. But I take such solace in the unmerited, beautiful favor of God, given that I just receive and enjoy. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for the story. We thank you for the story of getting.